It's good to be back again this morning. I know that uh, several people are out sick this morning, and it's the uh, first week that school is out. So for us guys that have to work for a living, traffic is really low. We, we like that. So <laughs> we don't like everyone being gone and all our friends missing, and, but uh, we do, do enjoy the uh, diminished traffic in the morning. But I'm Nate Arnold, as uh, you guys probably already know. And uh, we are continuing our series entitled The Majestic God. This is the third installment, and uh, we've been covering several of the Old Testament uh, covenants. Week one, we saw the majestic God who cannot be thwarted. And what we learned from there was we have a sure and steadfast rescue from Satan, from sin, and from death. And then in week two, last week, we uh, covered, or the title was Majestic God Who Preserves and Establishes, and we learned that God's grace is our only hope. And then this week, this morning, we're preaching from Genesis chapter 15, and our sermon title is The Majestic God Who Calls by Faith. And the main point throughout this is going to be God gives us the assurance of Himself. God gives us the assurance of Himself. And the story of Abraham is really contained in chapters 12 through 25 of Genesis, and it covers the great patriarch Abraham. And Abraham is really held in high esteem in history. As a matter of fact, three major religions come from Abraham, all claim him as the father or the progenitor of their religion. So the first one is Judaism. The second one is Christianity, and the third one is Islam. All, all claim Abram or Abraham as, as their father. And also Abraham stands at the head of a line of three patriarchs in the Old Testament. So you've got Abraham, you've got his son Isaac, and his son Jacob, who is later renamed to Israel. And all three of these people experience what I call the continuance of the covenants. In other words, a covenant that's made with Abraham gets reasserted by God to Isaac, and that gets reasserted again by God to Jacob or Israel. So all three patriarchs, these men are called the patriarchs, they receive the continuity of the covenant. And because of Abraham's prominent position in history, he's kind of put up on a pedestal. He's kind of held way up there, and he's often made out to be much larger than life than he really is. And the Bible takes great pains to paint the truth about Abraham, or Abram, as he's called early on. So we see that Abram is strong at times, and he's weak at others. We see that God calls him, he leaves his country in obedience, and and he takes his family and he follows God. He does what he's supposed to. We see that he honors God with his life and with his actions, but he also has some pretty serious failures, Abram does. We see that in the, in the text. He twists the truth to his own advantage. We'll, we'll see a little bit of that. And he even allows his wife to be taken into another guy's harem twice. Not once, but twice. Okay? Once with Pharaoh and and once with Abimelech. He has some pretty serious, serious failures. 
Uh, he valiantly rises to the rescue of a family member and he goes and rescues a lot of people and captives and brings him back. He's, he's, he's a real strong man in that. And he turns down a million bucks choosing just to worship God. How many people have ever turned down a million bucks just to worship God? Okay. But Abraham does, he, he does do that. And uh, he becomes frustrated with uncertainty regarding God's will and His promise. He gets really frustrated. And then eventually, he really wants proof of what God has said to him. Sound like anybody you know? Put your hand up. <laughs> it's this way for yes. Right? So in other words, the great patriarch Abraham is exactly like us. Exactly. We, we put him on a pedestal, but in, in truth, the Bible paints him as he's exactly like us. So I'm going to start out very quickly this morning. I'm going to bring the, the ski boat up on the plane, and we're going, to, we're going to boogie through chapter 12, 13, 14, and then we'll slow down to get, get to 15 real quick, and we'll kind of do a flyover of these chapters. So if you get lost, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it here a second. But in, in chapter 12, it's the beginning of Abram's life here uh, as, as we know him when we're introduced to him. And God calls Abraham away from his family and his country. He says to Abraham, come out. He says, I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing to all the other nations on the earth. All the other families of the earth. So God's call. So God's call has a purpose. God just, just doesn't call us for no reason. God calls Abraham so that he can be a blessing to everyone else on the earth. And it's the same with us. When we're called as Christians, we're not called to be in a little holy huddle. We're called to be a blessing just like our father Abraham was called to be a blessing to the rest of the people on the earth. And then he moves down into the land of Canaan. There's a famine there. And then he and his family move on down into Egypt because of the famine. And he kind of has a little... He, he doesn't quite explain the whole truth to Pharaoh about his wife. And his wife gets taken into Pharaoh's harem. And the Lord begins to plague Pharaoh. But... Pharaoh still, because of Sarah, he begins to bless Abraham and treat Abraham well, Abram well at this point. And he grows and he multiplies and, and has flocks. And then it finally comes to Pharaoh's understanding that, dude, I got Abram's wife. And he politely has Abraham or Abram escorted out of the country. And he sends him on his way, gives him his wife back. And then Abram goes right back into the country uh, where he came from, the, the land that God promised him. And in chapter 13, he gets right back in the land. He lands smack in the middle of it at a place called Bethel. If, if you don't know your geography, don't, don't worry about it. But he, it's smack in the middle of Israel there. And Abraham and Lot now have so much stuff that Abraham and Lot divide because the land cannot provide. They, they got too much stuff. So Lot says, well, I'll take the Jordan Valley over here. It's well watered. It's pretty. And, and Abraham stays put in the land. And the Bible makes a special point to record that Abraham moves, I mean, excuse me, that Lot over in the Jordan Valley moves his tent as far as Sodom. And the Bible spends a little ink to make a comment about Sodom. It says the men of Sodom were wicked and evil in God's sight. And just leaves it at that. But Abraham stays in the land. And then the Lord says to Abraham, Look up and down and walk all around. Because I intend to give your progeny, all your people, this land. I intend it to, give, to, to give this to your family. 
And that brings us to chapter 14. In chapter 14, where Lot lives in the Jordan Valley now in Sodom, there's five kings there in that Jordan Valley, five city-states, and they used to be vassals to a guy way over in Elam. His name was, I always mispronounce it, Kedor Laomer. Kedor Laomer. Got that? You'll be tested on that after. Okay, you can't leave. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, he was the king over in Elam. And Elam is Iran today. It's right where Iran and Iraq meets at, at the top of the Persian Gulf. And all these vassal kings, these five vassal kings in the Jordan Valley used to serve him. They rebel against him after 12 years. He gets three of his buds from the Fertile Crescent. They come over and they whoop up on everybody in the Jordan Valley. And as a matter of fact, all, all around the land, what we know today is Israel. He whoops up on everybody. They swing back up through the Jordan Valley, beat up on all five of those kings, and they sweep up Lot and capture him and take all that he has. And they head back north because they're going home. They, they took care of business. They've got everything they need. You know, they're, they're, they're rocking it back home. So, we'll stop at this point. Uh, well, actually, actually, we won't. We'll, so, at this point, Abraham, one of, the, one of the people who were taken captives, escapes and comes to Abraham, or Abram, and says, tells him what happens. So, Abraham takes 318 of his men. This is kind of how wealthy, you get a picture of how wealthy Abraham was. He had 318 trained men. How many of y'all got that? I'll be glad to get two people to do my yard work. So, but Abram had 318 trained men, and he's staying in, in Hebron, which is in south, the southern part of the land, and he's staying in a place called the Oak of Mamre. So, the Oak of Mamre is owned by a guy named Mamre. So, Abram takes his 318 men, Mamre, Eshcol, and Arner. means nothing to you, but they're three brothers that are Amorites that are buds with Abraham there, and they take off chasing these kings. And they catch him all the way at the top of Israel in a, little, in a city called Dan. And they attack him at night, and they whoop up on them. The Lord blesses them, watches out for them, and, and Abram beats the four powerful kings that just whooped up on five powerful kings. So this is the blessing. I mean, the Lord really blesses and delivers here. So, boom, they get everybody back. They get all the treasure back, and they start coming south back down to Hebron, which is where Abram lives. And they have to pass through Shechem. They have to pass through Bethel. And they start passing Jerusalem. And this is where we'll pick up our story today. But let me summarize for you, just so you have all this and you can pass the test on the way out. Genesis chapter 12, God's call as a blessing to all. God's call as a blessing to all. Genesis chapter 13, Abraham and Lot divide because the land cannot provide. And then the second part of that is the Lord says look up and down and walk all around. That's chapter 13 in a nutshell. Chapter 14 says four beats five, but Lot's still alive. Help me remember that. Four beats five, but Lot's still alive. And Abraham in pursuit and brings back the loot. That's the quick summary of all those. So as Abraham and all his buds and all the captives and all the loot began to pass Jerusalem, 
The road doesn't really run through Jerusalem, the old, the old high road, the, what's called the Ridge Road. It actually runs a couple miles east of the old city of Jerusalem. And as he's passing down there, he meets two kings. It's recorded in, in the last half of chapter 14. And uh, the Lower Kidron Valley is where this happens. If you want to go look at it on an atlas or a map. But this is where Abram and all those folks meet two kings. And first, he meets Bera, the king of Sodom. He comes over and meets him. And you'll, if you're looking in your Scripture, you'll find this in 14 verses uh, 17-24. through 24. But he meets Bera, the king of Sodom, who was a wicked man. The Bible takes great pains to explain <laughs> that they were... Uh, and, and always remember, the Bible is not spilling ink needlessly. It's, it's saying these things for, for a reason So when you read those things. Bear the king of Sodom, wicked, and he meets a guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem. They're passing Jerusalem, the city of peace, and he meets this guy called Melchizedek, the prince of Salem, or the king of Salem, excuse me, the king of peace. And he has interactions with both of these. And the first one he has interactions with is Melchizedek. And I, I would draw your attention to, I'll read it to you real quickly. But in verse 18 it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Why didn't he bring out food and water, all those captives? Something's going on here. Bread and wine. Okay. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him. He blessed Abram. And said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. That little band of folks whooped up on some pretty tough guys. Okay. And Abram, his interaction with Melchizedek here, Melchizedek brings out the wine. Very interesting to me. I don't know if these are allegorical. I can't tell. I'll leave that to you. Uh, but... Um, he blesses Abraham by God, and he blesses God who delivers Abraham, and Abraham acknowledges him and pays him tithes. Abraham sees him as a priest of the Most High God, and he pays him tithes, tithes out of everything that he, he just won. He gives him, gives him a 10%. What about the other king, the king of Sodom? king of Sodom comes to him and says, Abram, just give me the people. Keep the money. You know, just give me the people. Take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, the wicked king, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap. <laughs> a thread or a sandal strap. That's one of those. <laughs> a thread or a sandal strap. Uh, of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Arner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. So he totally waves off on one quarter of the goods. A million bucks. That's five kingdoms worth of loot. He waves off on one, one quarter of that to serve, serve the Lord. So Abraham completely rejects the king. He turns down the million bucks and... Uh, he uses Melchizedek's own words. He says, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Those are the exact words 
that Melchizedek used to him. And he says, I'd rather trust God for what I have than allow you to say that you made Abram rich. Very interesting intro into our passage today. So here we are. Now we're at our text. We're now transitioned into chapter 15. And here's where we get to see that the great patriarch Abram is exactly like you and me. He becomes frustrated. Watch for this in the text. He becomes frustrated with uncertainty regarding God's will and purposes. And he wants proof. There's two other things I want you to look for. It's actually one, but it appears twice in the text as we go through it. At the beginning, there's two scenes. There's two scenes in our, in our text today. Scene 1 is verses 1 through 6, and scene 2 is verses 7 through 21. And at the beginning of each scene, I want you to notice that God gives Abraham what I call an I am anchor. He says, I am something. And he gives God that, or he gives Abram that anchor as we, as we jump in, into our text. He says, I am. God points Abraham to the essence and character of himself saying the fulfillment of my word or promise is rooted in my very being. That's what he's telling him. All right, Genesis 15, 1-6. The Bible records that Abram has a vision. This is scene 1. And verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to him in that vision. And he says, fear not, Abram. I am, that's the first one, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Another way to translate this from the Hebrew is, Abram, I am your shield. I am your great reward. And some of your Bible versions will have that. God comes to him. And it's amazing what happens next. Abraham, or Abram, almost screams in exasperation. Get the context here. He says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house will be my heir. What are you going to give me, Lord? i got piles of loot. I just turned down a million bucks. What are you going to give me? What have I got? Who have I got to give it to? It's just piling up in the trailer. I I had to go rent extra storage. You know, I got more stuff than I can deal with. Unless we misunderstand, I want you to know, this is not a scream of unbelief at all. It's a believer's cry. Abraham is not screaming at God in that sense, but he's crying out to God for understanding. He says, I don't, I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't understand it. You keep telling me I'm your shield and I'm your great reward. And yeah, you just hooked me up with these kings, but I, I, I've got nothing. You know, I entered this land when I was 75. And by the way, he dies when he's 175. So he wanders around here for 100 years. Okay? And uh, he, he, he's just frustrated. And he, he, he talks to God. This is the cry, the same cry that you hear in the book of Job. This is not the cry of an unbeliever. This is the cry of a believer. Job says, I've lost all my kids. I've lost everything I have. I'm sitting in a pile of ashes. I have boils all over my body. I use pieces of broken pots to scrape the nasty things. And he said, my friends beat up on me every day. And yet, Job says, though the Lord slay me, 
I'll not turn my back on him at all. This is not the cry of, of Abraham is not crying like an unbeliever does. This is the same cry that you see in the story in Mark chapter 9 about the epileptic boy. Remember when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he gets down there and he sees all this, uh, the rest of his disciples arguing with people and he says, hey, what's going on? And uh, the boy's father says, hey, I brought my son to you, to your disciples, and, and they couldn't heal him. And he said, well, what, what's the deal? He said, how long has this been going on? And he said, well, sometimes he's walking along, he gets real stiff, falls in the fire. Other times he falls in the, in the, in the water. And God, if you, or, or he says, Christ, Jesus, if you can do anything, please have compassion on this. And Jesus says, if you can, he said, all things are possible for everyone, for whoever has faith, to, to summarize. And the man shouts, the very next words out of his mouth, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This is that kind of cry. This is, I'll, I'll tell you a story. We had a young couple in our church. It's been several years back. I won't name their name, but beautiful young couple. Young man was a former Marine. Suzanne, you'll know who this is. Uh, the man was a young, a young former Marine, good-looking guy. Uh, he had come from a good Christian family. His wife, he had a beautiful wife, smart, had two young children. And uh, when this lady got, she wasn't a Christian, didn't come from a Christian background, but when she got saved, buddy, she was a vacuum cleaner for the Word of God. I mean, every Bible study, every, everything. You know, she, she way outstripped her husband. And ladies, yes, we know, we all marry up. So uh, was it a surprise to the rest of us? But, you know, he, he just had to struggle. This lady just consumed the Word of God. I mean, she just... And the family was growing, and it was just a beautiful thing for the rest of us in the congregation to watch. And they went away one weekend to a wedding. And uh, they were on their way back. And they were in the van. And he and her were talking. The kids were strapped in the back. They're driving down the interstate and a truck in front of them hit a pothole. And it threw up a piece of concrete about this big. And at 70 miles an hour, it came ripping through the windshield and killed her instantly right while they're just having a conversation. And he wandered around in, in an absolute fog for months. Two little kids. This is the kind of cry that Abraham is projecting here. It's not the cry of an unbeliever. It's the cry of a believer in exasperation. This is that cry. And I want you to notice in the text, if you'll turn there, the gentle action of God with people like this. It's easy to say, suck it up and have some faith, brother. It's not, not the way God works. Not, not the way God works at all here. First, in verse 4, he points Abraham to the truth. He's already anchored him in who I am. He's already given him the I am. And he says, Abraham, this is the truth. This is my word. Because it says here, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Eliezer's not going to be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. So he points him right to his word, and he points him right to the truth. And then in verse 5, the very second thing we see God do with Abraham in his consternation here. He focuses Abram on the, on the promise, on the end game. 
and says to him, I'm in control of all this. Look, look what he does next. He, he says, so, and he brought him outside. He takes Abraham outside in verse 5. He says, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. He says, Abraham, I, I'm in control of all these stars. Everything. Take a look. Can you number them? Can you pick them out? Well, I'm certainly in control of everything that's going on in your life. And I give you my word that this is going to happen. And I'm totally in control whether you understand it, whether you're exasperated or not. I'm telling you that this is going to happen. And what's Abram's reaction? He believed the Lord. And the Bible says he counted, he the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And for the first time in Scripture, the very first time, this is it, you can underline it. First time in Scripture, we see that faith is tied to justification. This is the very first passage in Scripture where faith is tied to justification. Faith is tied. And, and we see that developed. If you want to go home and study that, read Romans chapter 4, read Galatians chapter 3, and, and read James chapter 2, if you're, if you're taking note. Romans chapter 4, Galatians 3 and James 2. And that will flesh that out. But faith, let me say one other thing about faith in passing. You'll hear people say today, and it's on YouTube, it's on TED Talks and everything else, well, I'm a person of faith. It means absolutely nothing. It doesn't. Because you'll see here that faith has to be anchored in someone and, or something. You have to have faith in something. I'm having faith right now that this bouncy piece of stage is holding me up. You have to have faith in something. And in this case, it's faith in someone. You can't just have faith. Your faith has to be grounded. And that's why Abraham's faith is. It's anchored in the person, the I am of God. God is the object of faith. Now, God does the exact same thing with us. I said Abraham's just like us. We all struggle with things like this. We all go through times like this in our lives. And if you haven't, just wait. Stand by. It's going to happen. That's just life. You're, you're going to struggle with things. And God does the exact same thing in, the, in our struggles that He did with Abraham. First of all, He points us to the truth. How does He do that, Nate? John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. He points us to His Word just like He pointed Abraham or Abram to His Word. And He also points us to the living Word. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, on and on and on. Okay? So that's who God points us to. The Word and the living Word. Just like Abraham. Second, just like Abraham, He focuses us on the promise. In Romans 5.1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, 1 and 2. You should learn that. It's my wife's favorite verse, by the way, which is why I have to know it. But in that verse, through faith, we're justified and we receive the righteousness of Christ. Through Christ, we have access to God's grace and through access to God's grace, we rejoice in hope. God points us to the promise. That's how He does it for us when we're struggling with these exact same things. And then He assures us. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. And then last of all, just like Abraham, we are also called to faith. The Bible says the righteous shall live by faith, which means to believe God. And that's actually mentioned four times in the Bible. Um, If you need to get that, I'll get with you after service. But God deals with us exactly like he did Abraham. This brings us to scene two in the text. Scene two in the text. Just as soon as God gets Abraham calmed down and back in the box, and Abraham is now solid in faith, and yes, God, I believe you, what does God do next? He speaks to him again. And he begins this section by giving the second I am anchor that I told you about. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. And Abraham spins up again. (laughs) He goes high and right. You know, he says, Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I possess it? You're killing me. (laughs) You know, give me something. You keep saying this to me and I I just don't get it. And I'm struggling and I'm, I'm dying here. And that's the exasperation that Abram feels. And God does something very interesting in this text. I, I, I really like this. God gives Abraham a shopping list in verse 9. It's really cool. He says, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He gives Abram a shopping list. And Abraham knows exactly what to do with this. This is the equivalent of you telling me, hey, Nate, I need a notary public, I need two witnesses, and I need you standing by. I know that a legal transaction is about to, is about to happen. I know that. When you, just, by the, just by the accoutrements that you told, told me that need, told me need to, to be present. And just by what God specifies to Abram, he knows exactly what's going to He says a covenant is about to be cut. We're, we're going to have a covenant here. And Abraham, God doesn't give any Abraham, uh, Abraham any instruction on how to do it. He knows exactly what to do. He takes them all, except for the birds. He cuts them in half. And he lays them out. Part over here, part over there. Cuts, uh, cuts each, each one, the ram and, and the female goat. And he doesn't cut the birds. He lays those out because he knows that's how a covenant is supposed to be cut. And he waits all day and he drives the, the birds of prey off. This is completely foreign to us. We don't grasp this. It's not something we do. Anybody cut a covenant lately? When I cut up a cow, I plan to eat him, not not leave him out there for the buzzards. But Abraham knows what to do, and he, he does it. And this is foreign to us. And what this means is when a person cuts a covenant, and you'll find it in many other writings, not just the Bible, but when they cut a covenant, what they're saying is, if I don't do what I'm signing up to do in this covenant, then you may do to me exactly what has been done to these animals. You may whack me in half and leave me, leave me for the buzzards. And this is how serious I am committing to this thing. And that's, that's, that's what's going on here in, in the Scripture. And so Abram lays it out because God's going to confirm, right? He lays it out there. And something weird happens says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. 
Now, I, I don't know how many of you have been in utter and abject darkness. I'm a little crazy, I'll admit it, but I, I used to do a little cave diving. And uh, when you're in an underground cave and there is no out, and you turn your light off, that is the most spookiest, scariest. We have lines we connect, and if you're not connected to a line and you have no light, trust me, utter and in the King James, it says a horror of darkness fell on Abram. And the horror begins to come over you. And this is what happens to Abram. He gets a horror of darkness. And in this horror of darkness where he just can't see, he can't see his hand in front of his face, can't see where to walk, can't, uh, where to put his foot, can't see anything, God shines a ray of hope for him. He says, then, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners. He gives him a little thumbnail sketch of what history is going to be in the case of Abraham. And he goes through a whole litany of things. He says, your, your offspring will be sojourners in a foreign land. They'll be there 400 years. They'll come out. They'll be wealthy when they come out. I'll bring judgment on the nation that uh, was, uh, held them captive. And he said, you yourself will go down to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. And then I want you to notice this last piece of text, this last piece of verse here. He says, and this goes back to last week's sermon, this is the grace of God. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God says, I'm in total control of all this. Just like I told you with the stars, Abram. I, I got it down. I, I know when the last person from the Amorites will repent, and I know when it's time to dish out judgment. I, I, I've got it all. It, it, it's all covered. And I'm extending grace until the time that I choose to withdraw my grace. The time of the Amorites is not complete. So, then... The next thing that happens, the Bible says, and this would, anyone who is sitting down would have jumped up when they saw this, when they heard this. Anyone that was standing up's mouth would have went wide open when they heard this. Because what I didn't tell you about the covenant is, it's always the junior or the vassal that goes through, never the king. The king doesn't go through them pieces of he doesn't commit to that it's the vassals that commit to that i commit to you O king and if i don't do what you say you can cut me up and leave me for the buzzards and everyone knew that but when the sun had gone down and it was dark behold a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces and on that day the lord made a covenant with abram god himself passes through the pieces. And if you can wrap your theological brain around this one, okay, God, God Himself passes through the pieces and offers His own death as insurance for the covenant. He says, I will do this or I myself will die. Now that's a guarantee for you when that comes from the Lord Almighty. Okay, Very... Very, you know, God's, and uh, you see it in other places in the Bible. The Lord says, I've sworn by my own self because there's no greater. <laughs> you, you, you can't get any, any better than that. The point of the text, though, is not all the things we see. The point of the text is that God did not allow Abram to walk between those animals because Abram 
was utterly unable to carry out his end of the bargain. The bad news for us, we're unable to carry out our end of the bargain also, utterly. And God and God alone is the only one who can assure the outcome. God, I'll say it again, God and God alone is the only one who can assure the outcome. Now, we're Americans. We're taught to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're Westerners. We're tough. We can get her done. And we're taught from the time we're, we're born that, you know, we need good intentions and we need commitment and we need a work ethic. And you can have every bit of that in spades and you still cannot control the outcome. God himself is the one that controls the outcome. And today, God assures outcomes through Christ. And we can see a lot of parallels between this covenant and Christ. Just as God condescended and pledged Himself to Abram here, Christ has condescended and pledged Himself to and for us. In the same way, God guaranteed the outcome. Christ is guaranteeing the outcome. In Christ, we have God's assurance of righteousness, faith, the future, and resurrection. I've not lived a perfect life. Nobody in this room's lived a perfect life, but Christ did. We don't have perfect faith. Christ does. We cannot guarantee the future. Christ can. We cannot resurrect ourselves, but Christ will, the one who pledged. We have assurance that God's promise of our resurrection is true because of Christ's resurrection. Christ offers Himself to ratify the covenant. And we see this in Matthew chapter 26. At the Last Supper, Christ hands the disciples the cups or the cup, and He says, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant. This is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Abraham exercises faith and receives the promise, and so must we. We must exercise faith in God's Word and receive eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ alone. Romans 4.13 tells us for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, through believing God. Christ provides the only guaranteed outcome for us. And I want to close by reading you a passage of Scripture. Paul is a way better preacher than I am. Okay, and I want to read you a passage out of Romans. Romans chapter 4, 16-25. And listen closely, because this is this exact chapter and verse and section that Paul is talking about. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Us Gentiles. Who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom He believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. 
He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the majestic God who calls by faith and gives us the assurance of himself. It's God who provides the guaranteed outcome when we turn to Christ and trust Him. And this is any situation, not just for salvation, but in any situation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You Yourself, the One that holds the atom together by ways and means that we don't understand, the One who flung the farthest star out there. Lord, when we think about that, I think the closest star is four to six light years away and light moves at 186,000 miles per second. And Lord, a, a, a being that is like that and yet a being who guarantees our salvation through Christ and who guarantees the end state, the assurance of our hope, and that is to be with You one day. Lord, to live with You one day and to dwell with You. And You guarantee that. So Lord, put it in our hearts that we think about this, that we dwell on this, that we turn to You when we want to scream, when life just crushes in, or when we're frustrated and we don't know what's going on, or or when we try to do it all ourselves, that we just... Go, I need to do what I can. I need to follow the Word, but the outcome is up to You. And I trust You, Lord. You're the one that put the stars out there. So Lord, we ask all of this. I ask You again to bless this church, bless this congregation. and Lord, that You would grant them a pastor who loves them and, and that You would use them in this place where You've set them that they may share the Gospel and be a shining light and a beacon here. And, and Lord, just reach out to the community where You've planted them. I ask this all in your blessed and holy name. Amen.